Hello, I'm Jim Cuno, president of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Welcome to Art and Ideas, a podcast in which I speak to artists, conservators, authors, and scholars about their work. The words almost look gay and merry because they're played or danced, is the way I describe it. They dance on the page. In this re-release of one of our most popular episodes, I speak with Nancy Perloff, curator of modern and contemporary collections at the Getty Research Institute, about her book titled Explodity, Sound, Image, and Word in Russian Futurist Book Art. This episode was first released in April 2017. The Getty Research Institute's Russian Modernism Collection comprises rare books, periodicals, lithographs, and other archival holdings documenting pivotal moments in the history of Russian and Soviet art. The Getty published a book focused on a unique and significant subset of this collection, Russian Futurist Artist Books. Titled Explodity, Sound, Image, and Word in Russian Futurist Book Art, this volume explores artist books made in Russia between 1910 and 1915. In Explodity, author Nancy Perloff relates the history of how visual and literary avant-garde artists collaborated to create handmade books that combine the verbal, visual, and the sonic. These artists invented their own experimental language called Zaum, which they used to write poetry that was juxtaposed with lithographed, drawn, and collaged images. The resulting books are meant to be read, seen, and heard. The text and imagery are both narrative and abstract, suggestive of the familiar but ultimately elusive in meaning. Their radical approach was powerful, expressive, and utterly unique. I met with Nancy one afternoon at the Getty Research Institute to look at several of these books, to hear recordings of Zaum poetry, and to discuss the cultural and historical milieu of their creation. So, Nancy, you begin your book by situating the history of avant-garde Russian book art in the context of modern Russian art and its relationship to advanced European painting, from Van Gogh to Gauguin and Picasso. How much did the Russian artists know about those paintings and those artists, and how did they know it? There were two great collections in Moscow, uh, Sergei Shukin and Ivan Morosov. Sergei Shukin was a cloth merchant in Moscow, uh, and he began to assemble his collection in 1897. It was a collection of French painting, Monet, Renoir, Cézanne, Van Gogh, Gauguin, Matisse, Picasso. So these these collections were private collections, and these pictures were in private residences. How did the artists see them? I haven't read any particular descriptions by the visual artists of visiting either collections. I do know that they were open to the public at certain hours. Now, whether in fact Malievich, Goncharova, Larionov actually did visit the collections... I can't verify that. What I can verify is Jakobsen talks about visiting the... Tre- Roman Jakobsen. Roman Jakobsen, yeah. the, the formalist, the linguist, talks about visiting the Tretyakov Gallery, which is the famous gallery in Moscow. And so we know for sure that the work at the Tretyakov was accessible. One other point that's just a nice story is that Benedict Lifshitz, who was both a poet and a lawyer and a very close friend of David and Vladimir Burliuk, he describes how Burliuk received from Alexandra Exter a postcard that she had brought back from Paris of a Picasso either painting or collage. So there are avenues like that as well for learning about French art particularly. And, and we know at some point, might be in the early teens, 
uh, Goncharova, Natalie Goncharova and Mikhail Larionov, maybe the both of them went to Paris. And I don't know if Malievich went to Paris or not. But, Malievich, but there were some artists yeah. who did go to Paris and brought back some, some memories of it, some descriptions of what they saw. Do you think that the visual impact of the, the modern artists in Paris on the Russian artists was significant or was it more the sense of independence or a sense of inventiveness that they could take art in another direction and that was there was license to do so? I think that's a beautiful way to put it. I think there were important manifestos um, on primitivism and neo-primitivism. Uh, Shevchenko, I believe, was the author of the most important one. And in that manifesto, he talks about European art, French art, and he talks about diverging, moving away towards the primitive. And so there's this dichotomy that I analyze a bit in the introduction to the book between East and West, even as when we look at Picasso paintings and compare them to what Malevich was doing, say, in 1913, you certainly see the influence of Cubism. I mean, Cubism was crucial for all Malevich, Goncharova, and Larionov, but maybe even most for Malevich. Yeah, and they certainly were aware of the relationship that Van Gogh and Gauguin had with the primitive and the kind of license that the primitive impulse gave modern artists to break from the constraints of a kind of conventional manner of painting. But of course, the crucial difference is that Van Gogh and Gauguin particularly Gauguin, had to leave to find the primitive. Whereas for the Russians, and they took this with great pride, the primitive, in quotes, was right there. The peasants, the Georgian steppes, the Kamenia Baba, which was uh, you know, an ancient Scythian sculpture that proved very influential and inspirational for someone like Goncharova. So the primitive wasn't getting away uh, to the exotic, but rather looking inward at one's own country and one's own past. You make a point in the books and the book arts of the second decade of the 20th century that there's something very special going on in the kind of formalist examination of the text of the books. And, and you introduce a very important figure, and that is Roman Jakobson, uh, and that is he's a literary critic and a linguist, and he works closely with the poets of the avant-garde. Uh, tell us about the relationship between Roman Jakobson and the poets. What drew them, him to the poetic experiments of the Russian avant-garde? He was extremely precocious, born in 1896. By age 16, he is meeting poets, visual artists, members of Bohemia in St. Petersburg at this small cabaret, which was in a tavern. From the beginning, Jakobsen was fascinated not only by poetry, but by the visual arts. And he writes a lot in his memoirs about 1912, 1913, being these critical years of interdisciplinarity. He doesn't use that word. He talks about relationships between poetry, sound, and the visual arts. And he's very, very, very focused on that. Now, Malievich may be the most important artist to link Jakobsen to because they shared this incredible aesthetic together. They first met in Moscow in 1913. And we know that they shared ideas because Malievich published letters in the yearbook of the Pushkin House, which are based on his earliest conversations with Jakobsen. And I want to just read a couple of incredible quotes to 
help you keep in mind this idea of theories of verbal and visual abstraction that interested Jakobsen and that he shared with Malievich. So, in a letter of June 1916 to his close friend Matushin, Malievich argued that, quote, the new poets waged a battle with thought, which enslaved the free letter and tried to bring the letter closer to the idea of sound, not music. From this came mad or zaum, that is transrational, poetry. So what Malievich calls the new painterly realism, which is what we think of as suprematism, he felt it was directly connected to the verbal and the vocal in zaum. So you have the painterly abstraction and the idea of sound as abstract. Uh, there's a second quote uh, following the Malievich quote. This is a summary by Romim Jakobsen of the verbal, vocal, visual line of thought, which shows his shared aesthetic with Malievich. Quote, Jakobsen, the theme was that the verbal sound could have more in common with non-representational painting than with music. This topic vividly interested me both then and much later. The question of the relation of word and sound, the extent to which the sound retains its kinship with the word, and the extent to which the word breaks down for us into sounds, and further, the question of the relation between poetic sounds and the the notation for those sounds, that is, letters. So we've got um, a theoretician, we've got visual artists, we've got uh, sound artists, that is, musicians like Matushin, uh, and we have poets. And the poets are a motley crew who come from different parts of Russia and make their way to the capital cities. Tell us about them, in particular about Klebnikov and Kruchanik and Mayakovsky. The stories of the different artists and poets, in this case poets, are quite fascinating. So Klebnikov was born in 1885. Velimir Klebnikov is his name. But he was born the far eastern part of the Russian Empire, the northern tip of the Caspian Sea below the Ural Mountains. His family moved frequently over great distances and finally settled more permanently in the city of Kazan, and that's where he enrolls, not in the visual arts or in poetry, but in mathematics, while also studying drawing. At a local school. Yeah, this was University of Kazan, which, according to literature, was a very prestigious university. In 1905, he and his brother uh, embarked on an expedition to the northern Urals to record bird songs. Influenced by their father, they wrote an essay, which they later published in 1911, containing detailed descriptions of bird calls. And this description of the bird calls anticipates Zaum. So he'll describe the P-E-E-T or these various kind of syllabic seeming sounds that already start to suggest a kind of Zaum. And his first poem, the first poem he ever wrote, was called A Bird in Captivity and was about a bird and kind of the bird song idea. And also Klebnikov's sensitivity to animals that were held captive. That was something that he was interested in and that influenced the book that he gave a title to, which was called Sadoxudi, A Trap for Judges. Both words are invented. Klebnikov had a bent for neologism. His name, 
uh, Viktor Klemnikov. He changed to Velimir at a certain point. Vel meaning hero or heroic, and Mir meaning world. And so when you put them together, it's kind of heroic world or commanding the world. Now, Klebnikov ultimately ends up in St. Petersburg, where he meets the symbolists, where he tries to become part of their world, finds he's not recognized by them, not understood by them. He then meets the Borlioks. He died at age 36 in 1922 of typhus, and so he died very, very young. But had already a huge impact on fellow poets, particularly uh, during his lifetime. So let's get to another poet. Then. Yeah. Let's get to Alexei Kruchanik. So Alexei Kruchanik had a very different kind of background from Hlebnikov. Hlebnikov came from a very educated family. Kruchanik uh, was born in 1886 uh, into a poor peasant family in the Herzan province. So that's located just north of the Black Sea. He did enter Odessa Art College, studied art, graduated, and then worked as a village schoolmaster, so as a teacher. And his main form of art was caricatures. It's very interesting that Mayakovsky... Kruchanich and Hlebnikov began their careers with an interest in art. So you have poets beginning as visual artists and then moving into poetry, and that certainly helps us understand how they collaborated with visual artists on the Futurist books. So let's get to a third poet with uh, Mayakovsky. Okay, so Mayakovsky is born also in a peasant family outside of Moscow He is very interested in the visual arts and in drawing and painting. He also wrote poetry from a very young age and was generally known as an incredibly difficult man who had many loves, but turned very, very early to the bricks, Lily and Osip Brick very wealthy. Mayakovsky never had a dime, but he was taken in by the Bricks, fell passionately in love with Lily Brick. And that romance, yeah, it was an affair, really, um, a, a really a menage a trois, lasted through his death. And the suicide in the late 20s was due to his sorrow, his lack of reciprocity from Lily Brick. But Mayakovsky was voluminous in his writings. And I'll make one point, whereas Malievich scarcely ventured abroad, only to Berlin, once, never anywhere else. Uh, Kruchanich never went abroad. Hlebnikov, only in the Russian Empire, he went to Persia and then came back. Mayakovsky traveled all the time. Paris, he, he'd spent weeks in Paris, and Lily Brick would host him there. And so, so a very, very different kind of situation. But Mayakovsky never learned a word of any language but Russian. So we have these three poets, and we've got a theoretician, we've got painters, Malievich, Larionov, Goncharova, uh, and we get a book, uh, Mir Skonska, 1912, the title of which I gather is made up in neologism. Yeah. You have three words, Mir Skonska. Mir, world, s, um, from, preposition, konza, end. When you string them together, what happens 
is there's a, a stress shift. Rather than it being consa, you have mirsconsa. So you then have a neologism that also has an accent on a part of consa that would never normally take place. Mirsconsa is the sound. And world from the end is the literal and most accurate translation, but generally people translate it as world backwards to show that it's words strung together. This is Velimir Hlebnikov's invention, this neologism, Mirskonsa, contains on the cover what may be the first appearance of a collage on an artist's book. Very radical in that respect. Um, Natalia Goncharova is the artist, and she glues this leaf onto the cover of green cut paper, and she also handwrites uh, the title of the book and the two authors. And you'll notice how there's a mixture of capital letters and lowcase letters, and what she's doing is already acting out in a way this idea of mirsconsa, which means not only reversibility, but the idea of moving away from the linear, moving away from the legible into something that breaks the um, strictures of time with reversals. And that idea of the illegible courses through the entire book. You've mentioned or used the word zaum once or twice before. Tell us about that and how it plays itself out in the text itself. Yes. The idea of zaum, za means beyond, um, the mind. So beyond the mind. Again, it's a neologism. And it's translated maybe most effectively as beyond sense, also transrational, beyond the mind. Is it thought to be somehow uh, like a primitive language, or is it thought to be a kind of supernatural language? I'd say more a primitive language, and also a language that epitomizes moving away from syntax, which really goes with linearity, if you think about it, and moving into a world that, yes, I'd say can be primitive, but also can be spiritual or mystical, because sound plays such a role. So, for example, if we look at this page, now we're looking at a page inside the book, Mirskonsa. Uh, this is a page that is done by Goncharova, which means she handwrites the text and she handwrites down here. However, Kruchane, who, who does the poetry, and Klebnikov called artists like Goncharova handwriting artists because they were the ones who actually handwrote the poem. But this is a collaboration, and we really need to emphasize that. Well, in, in the middle of the page is an image of some kind. It looks almost flowery-like. Yes. Is that hand-drawn or is that lithographed? This is uh, lithographed. Everything, all the actual handwritten and drawn-looking pages are run through a and are lithographed. But if we look at this page, we can really see how collaboration works. At the bottom of the page, you have a word that's repeated. Veselia. Does that have a meaning it that's conventional have a meaning, meaning or is it, it a made-up word? It, no, it's, it, it is a real word. It means gaiety or merriment. And the words almost look gay and merry because they're played or danced is the way I describe it. They dance on the page in a way that looks quite lovely and gay and merry. Well, let's hear what it sounds like. Спаси ножницы режут, 
Родные племянницы подгляды бают, болен, не вылезть. Стреляются хорошо, лишь раз. And if I were in the audience on the evening in which that's read for the first time, would I be able to make sense of that? If, if you were a member of the Russian audience, I think you might be able to make out what some of the words mean, because there are words in there, as you can see from the English translation. But where Zaum goes a little crazy is in lack of connection between words. So sometimes you have a nonsensical syllable or word. Other times, spasi you know, you have save scissors are cutting, but you can even see from the translation it doesn't go together. The words are juxtaposed or collaged in such a way that it's not completely comprehensible. But is there an obvious rhythm to it? We have a couple of options. There are books or there are poems even in this book that do really follow Russian meter. And Russian meter had a very clear organization. There was a whole division of different patterns of stresses and non-stresses. But what I argue in my book is that the Zaum poets will give you some meter, but then just when you think there is a meter that you're going to follow, they do something different. They add another stress. They take out a stress. And that's part of the, the play. And it is play, the unexpected So there's a value to this book in the oral sense, that is that one would hear it read aloud or incanted aloud. Uh, there's a visual value when one sees it. There's the literate value of one reading it and so forth. Uh, and in the same respect, it's a handmade book. Do you have any sense of the edition size of the book and how many there would be? Yeah, there were 220 copies of Mirskonsa, and each copy was different. Different in what way? The cover, for example a green collaged leaf that we see here. If I had with me a version or a copy, I should say, held by the Mayakovsky Museum, instead you have a gold cover. The image looks to be a flower or vegetable form of some kind. Mm -hmm. uh, is there some relationship between that image and the content of the book inside? Yes, absolutely, because if we look at this, what's so really remarkable about this page is Goncharova connects her collage-like drawing, which looks a bit like a leaf or a flower, has a folk-like quality to it, just as Veselia Veselia has a folk quality. At the same time, the drawing is about cutting, because you see the cuts going through. And this is about scissors, cutting. So you've got Goncharova. The text is about scissors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've got this really remarkable relationship between image, word, and sound. Let me read you the English of the text that's above the drawing so that you can see how it relates to this Zaum nature and to this idea of cut flowers. So, save scissors are cutting, nieces peep, sick not to crawl out, shooting well only once. And let me just add that word choice in Zaum is based on sound much more than it's based on meaning. Sound is primary. Now, the image that we're looking at, and even the language, it seems to be fractured and exploded, as if something had exploded in the room, and sound is everywhere, and images everywhere. The title of your book comes from a title of a Russian book in this series, or in this group of uh, books, called Explodity. Uh, tell us about that book, and let's hear some of the Russian. Okay, we're, we're looking now at 
the book Zorval, which is translated loosely as explodity. And just to explain that, Zorval is the past tense of the verb to explode in Russian, Zorvat. And what Kruchanich did, and he is the poet of this book, is he took the past tense, male past tense, he exploded, Zoval, and he added a soft sign. So when you see Zoval written in English, you'll see there's a diacritic, which represents the soft sign. By doing that, he turns it into a noun. So you have he exploded, turned into a noun, translated loosely, explodity, a neologism. So again, we're talking about very, very small editions, maybe 400 roughly. The first edition has a different cover. This is actually a cover by Nikolai Kulbin. Kulbin was a doctor, a poet, a kind of entrepreneur, got people together, organized exhibitions, and so forth. He, you can see, was quite a skilled draftsman. I like to think of this, but I think it can be anything, as one of these public debates, these futurist debates, where there was cacophony, and they were yelling poems and manifestos, and the crowd is screaming. But it can be whatever I think one wants to make of it. But do pay attention, too, to what he does with the handwriting. It's Alexei Kruchana here, the poet, and that's the soft sign I was referring to. So, explodity. And the cover image on the second edition book looks to be a kind of a factory or an urban scene in which the explosion is the just kind of fractured light forms across the surface of the architecture. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I see it as a kind of urban apocalypse with, you know, towers seeming to bend, windows curving, the chimney smoke still going up, and this kind of chaotic lettering, which is a little bit like what Kulbin does. The artist of this cover is Olga Rosanova, and she was an incredibly important figure, also died in her 30s, some extraordinarily young, helping Malievich put up posters for suprematism. This book differs from the first edition in the lithographs. So if you go through this book where you have rubber stamping in the first edition... Which is to say that the, the text is uh, printed by rubber stamping. Exactly. And it was basically uh, like a child's kit... So these are the exact same poems. So one is rubber stamping and one is lithographed, handwritten and lithographed. Yes, exactly. And we can actually listen to these. Even without illustration, this is a very striking poem that sets the tone for this book. So we are now listening to the first poem in the second edition of Zoval. Забыл повеситься. Лечу к Америкам. На корабле полезли кто, хоть был предносом. Tell us what the English is. Yeah. Forgot to hang myself. I'm flying to the Americas. On the ship did crawl someone, although he was right under my nose. So you've got a poem that starts with meaning, understandable. It also has a prosody to it. Zabul pavezitia. So you have a prosody there that is then completely gone against by the rest of the text. And just as the prosody or the metric flow 
goes away, so does the meaning. So things begin to change in the 1920s with regard to the radical book arts. The revolution comes in 1917, the Soviet Union comes in the 1920s, a different kind of book production is made at that time. So this is an extremely important example of a moment in the history of Russian artistic production that will be lost a few years after they've been produced. Yeah, yeah. And Malievich, early in the 20s, does produce books, uh, not books of poetry, books of imagery, the black square, the circle, the cross, um, books on suprematism. And he is active through the 20s, but by the early 30s, he is only producing those kind of terrifying paintings with the head, with the, yeah, yeah, with the figurative paintings with faceless uh, peasants. So how can the listeners to this podcast, for example, who will be interested in seeing and hearing more uh, of these poems and these books, how can they access them? I think the best way is to start with the online interactive. Because what, is, what is the web address for that? The web address is www.getty.edu slash Zaum, Z-A-U-M, poetry. One word. Okay, Nancy, if this is rich and interesting material, we appreciate all the time you've given us this morning. So thank you. Thank you. As Nancy noted, you can visit the online interactive at www.getty.edu forward slash Zaum Poetry, that's Z-A-U-M Poetry, to see images and to listen to the poetry in Mirskonsa Zorval and two other Russian futurist artist books. Our theme music comes from the Dharma at Big Sur, composed by John Adams for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003. It is licensed with permission from Hendon Music. Look for new episodes of Art and Ideas every other Wednesday. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Google Play Music. For photos, transcripts, and other resources, visit getty.edu slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.